let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, as we have sung, uh, we confess we need Jesus. Help us now through your word uh, to grow in our understanding both of our need and of how good Jesus is and of how wonderful is the gift that you give us through trusting him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Breaking the necks of heifers, marrying a captive woman, polygamy, stoning disobedient sons, exposing the bodies of executed criminals. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 is a chapter where we feel just how different foreign the life of the ancient Israelites was from ours. Uh, So different that you could be tempted just to dismiss the Old Testament as weird. Or if you're a rebellious son, dangerous. At best, a source of information for curious anthropologists. At worst, supporting practices we have long moved on from. But look again and you see that the law God is giving to Israel through Moses is seeking to deal with the messiness of human life an emotional and moral messiness that we are all too familiar with in our own lives. That business with the heifer is addressing the indifference we can develop towards the death of others, especially the death of strangers. And then we have in the captive woman an example of the power imbalance between men and women that can lead to sexual exploitation. Oh, and then... We have examples of favouritism in families and adults using children as pawns in their disputes with one another. An example of the rejection of the authority of parents that can grieve and impoverish. And then the attempt to turn justice into debasing vengeance. All tendencies in human behaviour we know. All tendencies that can bring misery to the lives of individuals and ruin to a society. And all an expression of sin. Our stubborn commitment to putting ourselves first, our me-ism. You know, being concerned only with my life and showing no concern for what happens to others not connected to, to me. Oh, my pleasure even if it uses and demeans others. My power to get my own way, even if it treats others unfairly and sets up divisions in families that will endure. My will, my right to do what I want and to reject all authority outside myself. My vengeance, even in the humiliation of the dead. This is human behaviour. The human heart that we know It's the mess we live in, the mess we help to create. So how does the law deal with this mess? How does it restrain and condemn these tendencies in the life of Israel, in human life, and why? Oh, and why, in the end, are good laws not enough? How can we ever escape the mess the ugly mess our sin, our meism, creates. So let's think first about what behaviour these laws promote and restrain. 
If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. Now you would have noticed that these are all if-then cases. That is, they're examples, often extreme examples, pointing to a principle. Here there's been a murder. It's been investigated, but no murder has been found. Oh, and it happened somewhere else, to somebody else. And I guess the Israelites could have thought, well, that's sad, but it's got nothing to do with me or my community, and then just get on with life. But the law says that this lonely death is a big deal. All the surrounding villages have to come together and work out which village is responsible for providing atonement, and this is done by geography, whichever village is closest. And when that's worked out, the elders of the nearest city have to go to a lot of effort. They've got to get the heifer, they've got to find a suitable location, perform ritual washing and speak ritual words, and the seriousness of it all is brought home by the presence of the priests. They're there to make sure it's all done correctly. You see, this death, this lonely death, is not allowed to go unremarked. It's not allowed to be thought of as anything less than very serious for the whole community. Every life matters. And why? Well, because, verse 1, Israel is the Lord's people living in the Lord's land. The Lord, the creator, is the giver of life who has made people in his image, all people. The taking of innocent life, verse 9, brings guilt. The guilt not just of taking the life, but of despising God, the creator. Guilt that must be atoned for. Normally that would be by exercising justice, taking the life of the one who is murdered. Where that cannot be done, the Lord provides this ritual to preserve purity and righteousness in his land, to remove the guilt from his people and his land. And he does that because he is a God of justice, not injustice, of life, not death. And as we see at the end of the chapter, a blessing, not curse. And so justice, life, blessing should characterise the land in which his people dwell and where he is to be present amongst them. Guilt must be atoned for. Now that should make us pause, shouldn't it? Every life matters because so much innocent death passes unremarked in our history and our present. And what about the business with the captive woman? War was a feature of ancient life and making captive the women and children of non-Canaanite cities was allowed and the alternatives to captivity for the conquered were often death or destitution as the sources of economic and social security had been destroyed. So what was to happen if a victorious warrior saw a woman he desired, a woman now in his power, a power history tells us is so easily abused. Think of Isis and the Yazidi women. Well, verses 10 to 14 tell us. And as you hear me read them again, think, whose interest does this law serve? Whose behaviour does it 
restrain. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall save her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. This law serves the interests of the captive woman by controlling and limiting the behaviour of the powerful man. Although in his power she is not to be raped or enslaved, but, verse 13, to have the full status of a wife and be integrated into a new family. She is to have time to mourn and adjust with the postponement of sexual intimacy. And if the man changes his mind about her, well, she is to leave as a free woman to go wherever she wants. He cannot take any further advantage of her. She's not to be sold as property or kept on as a slave. No, she's to be let go wherever she wills, free. And the responsibility for this behaviour is placed with the more powerful man. He has to exercise self-control. He has to limit his power. He has to respect her humanity and to do what is right by her. And why? Well, we're not told explicitly here, but throughout Deuteronomy we've been told of God's commitment to the powerless, to widows and orphans. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And the Lord's people were always to remember in their treatment of the powerless that they had been powerless, slaves in Egypt, until the Lord rescued them. God's righteousness and their redemption meant in Israel respect for and not the abuse of those in their power. And don't we need to hear this, where we have relationships with an imbalance of power, especially in intimate relationships. There's a responsibility on the more powerful, so often the man, to limit and control his power. And the less powerful are not made responsible for the more powerful doing what is right. The Lord calls on them to obey. Limiting the power of the powerful, the claim of the father to unfettered authority over his children, is the, also the theme of the next law. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. 
Now, polygamy was permitted but uncommon in the New Testament, usually the practice of the wealthy, but one of the ways polygamy could arise is actually seen in the previous law, getting another wife through warfare. And as we see in the Old Testament, polygamy is accompanied by problems, one of which is portrayed here. Here the father is claiming the right to wrong the son of the unloved because the father thinks his own will and preferences are more important than custom or right. More, the father is wronging this child because of his relationship with his mother, for which the son has no responsibility. Such a claim to unfettered authority by fathers in families expressed in arbitrary favouritism is actually a recipe for division in families, for one playing off the other in terms of the favour of the more powerful. Oh, and it's also a recipe for the embitterment of children. Here the law limits the power of the father who wants to reign like an unaccountable tyrant over his whole family. The law subjects his behaviour to external regulation, to community standards. And why? Well, it's because God is righteous and he expects people's rights given in law to be respected, not arbitrarily set aside at the whim of the powerful. Yet just as the law protects a vulnerable son from the unregulated authority of his father, so it also protects parents and society from a rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn... Whoa, what have I gone? I was always there. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his gate, the city, at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of this city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now we are a little stunned by this, aren't we? The death of the rebellious son. You see, our society expects almost endorses and encourages teenage rebellion. It's almost a sense of way of people finding themselves. Oh, and I think we're also surprised because we don't fully appreciate the role of the family in Israel's relationship with God. Remember, God had commanded that children honour their parents in the fifth commandment, and that command had a promise, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, the promise accompanies this command because parents, father and mother both, were to teach children this Torah, this instruction from God, and the keeping of this instruction is what will allow them to live securely in the land of promise all their days. Parents were the one who transmitted belonging to the people of God, covenant relationship, by bringing up the child to know and keep God's law. 
And parents were the one who included children in the blessing of the covenant by stewarding the land God had given them, their inheritance amongst Israel, an inheritance which they would then pass on to their children. To stubbornly and persistently reject parental instruction, as this son did, was not just to reject his parents and cause them grief, but to reject God's rule over Israel. It was to repudiate the Lord's covenant, his rule over his people. More, this son's selfish behaviour, witnessed in him being a glutton and a drunkard, threatened the economic viability of the whole family. You see, this is an agrarian, a rural society. They only have what they harvest. The son, consuming the limited resources of the family where he should have been contributing, threatened their viability. This son, by saying that he will be ruler of his own life, subject to no others, is a short-term threat to the survival of the family and a long-term threat to the survival of Israel. For where this rebellious behaviour goes unchecked, where Israel fails to live obediently to the covenant, they will be cast out from the land. That's why this son's behaviour becomes a community issue. And he becomes subject to the judgement not of his parents, but of the community, of the elders. And it's also why the decision to bring him to the elders, hard and grievous as it would have been, was actually love of the Lord and love of his people. God expects respect for those to whom he's entrusted the passing on of his life-giving instruction. And the death the law enacts here is a sign of the death that will inevitably come to all those who repudiate his word in favour of their own rule, of insisting on their own way. Finally, Moses speaks of what can be done with the corpses of criminals. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, this man's not killed by hanging on a tree. The death sentence has already been carried out by stoning. And in many cultures, uh, the body of the criminal was then exhibited both as a deterrent and also as a way of further shaming him and those associated with him. And in the cultures surrounding Israel, the, the body could be left up for weeks while the corpse was picked clean by scavengers. Here the Lord is saying that if the Israelites do exhibit, this is permission, it's not command, if the Israelites do exhibit the body, it can be for no more than that day. The body must be taken down in the evening and buried. Why? Why should Israel be different? Well, it's because a hanged man, it says, is cursed by God. A man executed has broken one of the major commands like worshipping other gods or murder or repudiating the authority of his parents. So he has departed from the covenant and is now by death forever excluded from the covenant. He's cursed, always remaining under God's judgment 
always unable to enjoy the blessing of the of relationship with the Lord, forever unable to be one of the Lord's people. And the hanging on the tree is the sign of this, that he is cursed of God. But as we saw in verses 1 to 9, God is the God of justice, life and blessing. And the land, his land, is to be marked by justice, life and blessing. And so the curse is to have no abiding presence in God's presence, no abiding place in his land, the body is to be buried. Deuteronomy 21 gives us the good laws of a good God, laws that say all human life matters, that power should be controlled to protect and promote the interests of the less powerful, of the vulnerable and dependent, laws that say that social order and rightful authority should be respected and the selfish should not impoverish and threaten others. Laws which express the reality that Israel is to live in the land which the Lord their God, the creator of all, the only God, they're to live in his land, the land he gives them, as his people. Their life together should show that their God is holy and righteous, merciful to the weak and the needy, the God of blessing and life. And these are laws from which we can learn what it is to be righteous and to live as the people of the righteous God. But if all you heard this morning was go and do likewise, live as if every life matters, use your power and privilege to protect and not exploit those in your power, listen to and obey your parents and all those who teach you God's word. If all you heard this morning was go and do likewise, I would have failed you because the message can't just be do better, try harder. You see, this law tells us more than God's standards. It tells us that we fail them and that the law alone, good rules alone, will never be enough to get us out of the human mess. You see, at their best, laws regulate our sinful behaviour, but they don't change us. We see that. There's still warfare, unsolved murders, a need to protect some from the misuse of the power of others. We see that even in the church. Oh, and in regulating, the law also condemns such behaviour. And in Deuteronomy 21, we see again how right God is to condemn that behaviour. I mean, a society where only the lives, the deaths of some and not all matter well, that rapidly becomes an unjust and callous society, a society that sanctions the exploitation of the weak by the powerful, whether that's sexual exploitation or economic exploitation, becomes a dangerous, fearful, bitter place for many, a society where there's no respect for the authority of those entrusted with teaching and training for life, where proud rejection of any authority outside the individuals promoted quickly becomes chaotic, unable to prosper with lives marked by conflict, frustration and grief. We want such behaviour controlled and condemned. We hear this and we say, God is right to condemn and restrain such behaviour. 
And that means God is right not just to condemn the persistently rebellious son or domineering father. I mean, we can read this and, and think that, can't we? The law condemns the really bad and we say, yes, but we're okay. No. Actually, when we see the effects of these attitudes, it means God is right to condemn us. So think of the attitudes behind the mess, the attitudes exposed and condemned by the law in restraining them. Indifference. We hear of a junkie found dead in Richmond. We shrug our shoulders. Of the innocent unborn killed in their thousands, and we're not moved. Another cyclist killed by a hit and run, oh, and we may think of it until tomorrow's news. Or of deaths on our frontiers in the past of Aboriginal women and children where there has been no atonement. We find it easy not to notice. Abuse of power, well, that can lurk in the hearts of religious people. And it doesn't need to be seen in the gross exploitation of children for sexual advantage. Where we have power, we can always think that it's just natural that things should work out our way, to our benefit, that others should do what we want, when we want, regardless of their own circumstances, whether that's working unpaid overtime or putting up with our uncomfortable or rude conversation or worse. You know, even in our own families, we can favour one over another. We can manipulate affection to get what we want. And who of us has not rebelled at times, broken that command that says we should honour our parents? Who of us has not been convinced that we should get our own way and spoken dismissively of our parents or other authorities to our friends? You see, what the law condemns is the heart of me. Me first, me central. It's condemning our self-love that says, my life or the lives of those close to me matters more. My desire should be satisfied and others are here to do that. My power should get its own way. My will alone should prevail. It's my right to do what I want and everyone else should conform to that. You see, we, in our self-love, create the mess that is our world, that is our lives. And because the issue's in our hearts, we can't escape the mess by making more or better laws. And we cannot escape the condemnation of the law. And this is not the condemnation of some obscure ancient text. The law expresses the righteousness of the God who gave it and he is the living God, the only God, the creator of all. This is the condemnation of the true and living, the righteous and just God, your creator and your judge. By our behaviour we all come under the curse. That is, we're all excluded from the blessing of God, excluded from the life and peace which is to be found in his presence. We all face that eternal death, that continuing experience of his wrath. Yet because God is the good and righteous God, 
the God who in his righteousness always keeps his promises, who has compassion on the helpless. This law that condemns us points us to the way he has provided for us to escape the mess. Paul picks up on Deuteronomy 21 in Galatians 3 when he speaks of what God sent Jesus into the world to do. Having repeated the law's verdict that everyone who doesn't do everything that's written in the law is under a curse, Paul goes on to write, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. That cross we, these days, find so easy to talk about, don't we? Well, he didn't deserve to be there. He and he alone had perfectly kept God's law. His heart wasn't me, me, me. His heart was giving to loving the Father and doing his will in loving us. See, he wasn't on the cross for his own sin, but ours. He was excluded from God's blessing. He exchanged life for death. He was cursed to spare us death and judgment. He who had all power didn't use it to get his own way, but to seek the good of those in his power. That's us. He humbled himself to die for us. And it's through trusting Jesus that his death was for us, was God's work to save us, that we can escape the penalty of our sin, that we can know the blessing Abraham knew, the blessing of being justified by faith. That's right, trusting Jesus' gospel, his promises, we can be right with God reckoned as someone who's kept God's law, who's always lived by his righteous standards, someone who can now live in the presence of the holy and just God, enjoying peace and life from him. That says St Paul is ours now. That blessing of being justified by faith is ours now by believing the gospel of Jesus, that he's died for our sins and risen again as Lord with all authority. And what Jesus does is even better. In believing the gospel, we not only escape the penalty of sin, we escape its power, the hold of self and love of self on our hearts. Because we're justified by faith in Jesus' death and in Christ, come, and this is what it says, come to be adopted as God's children, sons of God, we receive the Spirit of God. Because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We receive the Spirit of God, the Spirit who assures us of what we could never believe of ourselves, that we are God's children the Spirit who changes our hearts to no longer live for self but for God so that we come to love what God our Father loves. We come to long for the righteousness God our Father commands. Paul speaks of the work of that Spirit 
in our hearts later in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. No longer are we enslaved to love of self. We're set free to love others. Oh, no longer do we need the Lord to restrain our wickedness because we now want to give ourselves to the good, to having and showing in our life the character of children of God. And through the Spirit, we are given strength and grace to control ourselves, to seek the good of others. And trusting Jesus, not only do we escape sin's penalty and power, we're given the hope that one day the mess our sin has created will be no more. That one day we will live in the new creation where there are no longer wars, no longer exploitative relationships, no longer arbitrary tyrannies, no longer defiant selfishness, no longer death or tears. And do you see that verse 3 of chapter 22? No longer any curse, nothing to defile us, nothing to drive us from God's presence. So as you see the familiar being addressed in these foreign, perhaps oh-so-strange laws of Deuteronomy 21 with their talk of heifers and captives and favoured wives, see the ugliness, feel the ugliness of self-love that subjects others to my pleasure, my desire, my power, my will. And see here the righteous condemnation of God of that self-love. And know both are real. And both are the consequences of our sinful hearts. But see also the one to whom this righteous law points us to. The Lord Jesus, hanging in weakness on the cross, crushed by selfish power, a life that could be reckoned expendable, dismissed by the powerful from the world of men. See him on that tree, cursed of God for us, though he had never rebelled against his father's will. And as you see him, know that there is a way of escape from this mess, of escape from the penalty and power of sin now, and more, of hope of a life marred, a life which is no longer marred by our rebellion against God. Know that there's this hope given by the grace of the righteous and merciful God. For Jesus who hung there is now risen with authority, not just to judge, but to forgive. So turn to him. If you see in Deuteronomy 21, God's word, your own heart exposed, in the hearts exposed there. If you feel the justice of God's condemnation, if you fear being cursed by God, excluded forever from life and blessing, turn to Jesus, who became a curse 
for you. Call out for forgiveness to become one of his people. He lives, he will hear and he will forgive. And if you want to know more about that or about Jesus, come and talk. And if you're a believer and perhaps have glimpsed again your own heart without Christ in all its ugliness and shame, well, hold fast to Jesus and forgiven by grace, give yourself to the work of his spirit in you. Give yourself to live the life of love that will live knowing all made in God's image matter, that will use power like our Lord Jesus to seek the good of those in our power, that will seek to be just and fair in all our dealings as we receive from our Lord not only his authoritative word that tells us what is right, but his life-giving word that tells us of our Saviour, the Saviour who became cursed for us so that in him we could know the blessing of being right with God, justified, welcomed into his presence forever through faith in him. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly God, Father, you know, we come and uh, we throw words around. We speak of Jesus. We speak of his death. Oh, and we come and confess our sin. And you know that often we can say those words as if it's just our right. Uh, but we pray that you would, in your mercy, show us our sinful hearts so that we would not put any trust in ourselves, not put any trust in what we do, but put our trust wholly in our Saviour, who died for us, who gives us his spirit, and who will keep us. And gracious Father, we pray that knowing his love, we would be moved to live like him. Not abusing power, but using power for the good of others. Not indulging ourselves, but serving others. And in all things, loving you, the righteous and holy God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.